Good morning again. I don't know if you've seen the advertisements for the new Julia Roberts movie that's fixing to come out with George Clooney. I have to confess that I have a little bit of bitterness in my heart towards both of those actors. I'm bitter against George Clooney because he played a character on ER named Doug and was so much better looking than me that it literally set me up for failure for the rest of my life. So I'd like to thank him for that. And then Julia Roberts ruined um, most of my dating experience because every girl I ever dated had watched her romantic comedies and thought that that's how real life worked. That we just end every discussion by kissing in the rain with the camera spinning around us, and they lived happily ever after. This new movie, uh, I don't know much about it, except that they've apparently spent a lot of money on marketing and advertising for it, because I'm seeing the ads everywhere. And they are this incredibly embittered, divorced couple. And y'all know me well enough to know I do not make light of divorce, and we hold marriage in very high esteem. But the reality is the... The fake, happily ever after Hollywood version of a relationship usually does end up in disappointment. Right? The, the reality is, um, the only thing that would make the movie better is if George Clooney was like balding and overweight. But anyways, um, we, we watch these movies because we want to escape a reality that doesn't always feel very happily ever after. Because meanwhile, in this existence, man, sometimes it's just a bit of a struggle. This morning, we're going to encounter a text that we wish would have ended with happily ever after. But it's so good for us that it didn't. Grab your Bible, if you would, please. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. Uh, But we have a tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we dive in. And uh, so if that's where you're at. In your spiritual journey, then we're going to invite you to join with us in that tradition today as we declare this. And man, this week I was just thinking, I know we say this weekly, but can we say this with some conviction? Like, let's really think about this this morning. May this not become so routine that we're not thinking this through. Let's say this. I I, false started you. So let's say, but uh, uh, I'm just kidding. For real, let's say this with some confidence. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn yet again to Acts chapter 15. We've been here for a few weeks. Acts chapter 15, Lord willing, we're finally going to get into the beginning of Acts chapter 16 today. If you're using the Bible from the seat in front of you, it's page 869. Uh, page 869, uh, Acts chapter number 15, and we're going to pick up kind of where we left off this story that we've spent uh, a few weeks in where there's this big uh, controversy around how a person can be saved. How can a person have a relationship with Jesus? Do we have to keep the Old Testament law? Specifically, uh, does a person have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus? And uh, this big debate happens. They land on, no, just have faith in Jesus. We're not going to disrespect one another by profaning um, uh, our our um, involvement with pagan worship by eating food that was offered to idols. But, but man, we're, we're saved by grace alone. That, that's the only way that we can be saved. And so they write this in a letter. They send some messengers out to deliver this letter. And where we've left off is verse number 41. It's where we'll pick back up this morning. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Before we move on, I want to share a quote with you. Uh, Another pastor that I was studying for this text started off with this quote that I think is so good. John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things, and we might be aware of three of them. Isn't that good? And here's the thing. I think God's doing way more than actually 10,000 things, and I'm usually aware of less than three. (laughs) I think he might be being conservative with his quote here. 
God is always doing more than we perceive. And if we're honest, the three things that we do perceive, we find out later we actually kind of got wrong. We didn't actually understand what he was up to, if we're honest with ourselves. And this is the, the lenses through which I want us to encounter this moment in history this morning. That God is always up to more than we can see. So back to our verse, knowing God's up to more than we can see, here's what we perceived when they read it. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. I love that God's up to that. And Judas and Silas, the ones who took the letter, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And here's where I wish we could fade to black and the words could come up and they lived happily ever after. Right? But the text is about to be way more honest than that. When they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. Thank God, because there was a lot of conflict, right? When, he, when we started this story like three weeks ago or whatever it was, there was not a lot of peace. But they sent them off in peace by the brothers to those who'd sent them. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. The first missionary journey where we see God do these incredible things. He has this idea. Let's return. Let's go back and see how everybody's doing. And here's where we might would wish the story would have not bothered to continue. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Saul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them, had not gone with them rather to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I'm very grateful for a book I read several years ago called Healing Your Church Hurts. Uh, I've mentioned that book a few times over several years. The author's name is Stephen Mansfield. And some of this I've shared, but we're going to discuss this morning. I'm grateful for that because this is one of those pivotal moments where Just a a chapter before this, we saw the Apostle Paul so attacked by those who were opposed to the move of God. This thing that we call church, this gathering that is a movement around a cause, this movement has faced a headwind since the beginning. This movement has faced opposition. This movement has been swimming upstream since the beginning. And this opposition happens at the beginning here with the Apostle Paul where he is beaten so badly they think he's dead. Like they leave him assuming he's dead. But the Apostle Paul keeps moving. He keeps moving forward. He gets up and goes back to the cities facing this opposition from unbelievers. And then in the next chapter, he's facing opposition from believers. They're like, we should add circumcision to this and we should complicate the law of Moses into the Christian story. And so now there's there's opposition from from believers that he didn't know. But now this morning we get to opposition from his best friend. The closest of friends are going to have opposition between one another. We have good friends here who have a great idea that ends up. In bad conflict. When the Apostle Paul encountered the person of Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's blinded. He gets sent to the house of a guy named Ananias who's like, really, Holy Spirit? I have to let this guy who's an executioner for followers of Jesus into my house? After Saul spends time there, he goes to the believers in Jerusalem and they're like, it's a trap. Right? There's no way. Like this dude was trying to kill us yesterday and today he wants to join the team. This is Javert joining 
the resistance, this can't be real. It's Barnabas. It's Joseph, whose nickname is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who says, hey, I believe God's really changed this guy's life. The first person to welcome him in is Barnabas. And they spend at least, if our history is right, at least a decade shoulder to shoulder proclaiming Jesus together. The first great missionary movement is them together proclaiming Jesus. The churches that would plant churches, that would later plant churches, that would later plant churches in our country, were started on their first work together. That's some fruitful ministry. And these dear friends, these good friends, have a great idea. Let's go back to these churches that started 15 minutes ago and make sure everybody's okay. (laughs) It seems like a good idea. It's a great idea, of course. But these good friends with the great idea end up in this bad conflict because of this guy, John Mark. So the question is, who is John Mark? What's his backstory? Most scholars believe that we first meet John Mark as a young teenager, what we would call a middle schooler in our culture. We think that the first time we ever meet John Mark is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. It says this, a a young man followed him, followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Instead of ugly naked guy, we have nameless naked guy. Who is this? Many scholars believe that this is John Mark. Why do they think this is John Mark? For a couple reasons. One is because, remember, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he had what we call the Last Supper. We believe that was in John Mark's living room. Well, upper room. But it's, what's the most important thing that's ever happened in your living room? We think this living room was the setting for the Last Supper. Incredible, right? We also think this is the place where Jesus walked through the walls and showed himself to his followers. My living room seems really insignificant right now. We also think that this is the place that they are waiting for the Holy Spirit and praying and fasting together. We think this is the place in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit descended and there were tongues like a fire. The great day of Pentecost, we think, happened in his living room. What have we done lately? Besides watch Texas Tech. Never mind. (laughs) And that, kids, is what we call a murmur. Okay. So the reason that a lot of scholars think this is Mark is they believe that he had already gone to bed. He was wrapped up in his bed sheet. And he hears that something's going on with Jesus. He's been watching The life of Jesus unfold. His mother Mary, uh, scholars assume that she must have been a widow because it seemed that she owned the house and that wasn't historically usually possible unless you were a widow. But man, his mom maybe tells him and he goes running out with nothing on but his bed sheet and that does not work out well for him. But it says he ran away. One of the other reasons that scholars think that that was John Mark in Mark chapter 14 is quite frankly because running away seems to be what he's good at. He's a runner. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, we talked about that back in in June. Peter went back to a house. That was his living room. It's his house. It's his mother's house. We know about John Mark that he, according to Colossians chapter 4, is the cousin of Barnabas. So since he was a young teenager, he's had probably the best view outside of the apostles, of the ministry and life of Jesus, and then the launch of this thing called church. And then his cousin is this profound leader, Joseph, who's called son of encouragement, Barnabas. And if that weren't enough, in Acts chapter 13, we read that they're setting apart, they're setting aside, they're laying hands on, Paul and Barnabas to send them on this 
this great missionary journey. Verse number 5 of Acts 13 says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed uh, the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When we read that text a few weeks ago, I hinted that maybe this was John the Apostle, but it's not. It's a different John. It's John Mark. Just kidding. This is This is not the... Powerful apostle, the beloved. This is the no-name kid. Isn't that incredible? Like he's with them on the first missionary journey in Acts 13, chapter number 5. Chapter 13, verse number 5. What an incredible privilege. But not for long. Because eight verses later, we read this. Paul and his companions, Acts 13, verse 13. Set sail from Paphos, came to Persia and Pamphylia, and John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. He what? He left. It's only a few weeks in. Like we're already, we're reading the story. Incredible things are happening. Why did he leave? What happened? I want to know. Do you want to know? I have no idea. I have no idea. Here's all I do know. Apparently, it was not a good enough excuse for the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Because the dude was ticked. As a matter of fact, fast forward, quite a bit of time later, we land in Acts chapter 15, and he's still mad about it. (laughs) So I don't know why he left. But man, I sure do know that Paul was not okay with it. He was so not okay with it, he refused Barnabas to bring along his little cousin with him. This conflict would seek... To divide them. I want you to notice something that says in verse number 40 again. Look back at verse number 40. And, and this is something I had missed for years in this text. But it seemed, when it says that Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, it seems to imply that Barnabas and John Mark weren't. Like it says they set sail and returned to Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas, however, map out their plan and are commended by the brothers. It implies that the son of encouragement left without any encouragement. He left without any fanfare. He left without any blessing or honor. What it sounds like is a good old-fashioned church split. God forgive us. And what is amazing about this story is Barnabas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. He clearly continued to serve the Lord because the Apostle Paul will talk about him fondly in his memories. But we don't see his ministry ever again. The church was so fragile. She was so young and she was about to face Even worsening persecution, this could have yet again been the end of it all. This crisis between these two, this this threat that could break apart the church, that, by the way, became obviously like a conflict that people talked about it. One author said husbands and wives argued over the dinner table about who was right. Which side are you on? Hashtag Teen Barnabas was trending that day. Just kidding. And here's what's crazy. God doesn't leave that story out of the Bible for us. Like Luke could have just been like, "Uh, that was ugly. Let's skip this part. But the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to include this anti- Happily ever after. And maybe we would prefer the happily ever after, right? That's why we want to escape and watch fake movies is we want it to be this magical thing. And that might have made it more enjoyable to read, but it would not have been nearly as helpful. I'm so glad that this ugly moment is included. And I want to give you four reasons why. God's always up to 10,000 things. And here's four things we can be aware of in this moment with 2,000 years of hindsight. To look back on this event, I'm really glad that this story is included because, number one, it reminds us that church hurts are real. It's real. It's a thing that happens. 
Uh, I was reading a book this week by Paul David Tripp, my favorite author. I quote from him all the time. And he, he says something like this in every book he's written. Um, but I, it, it's just so fitting for us. He, he said this, you cannot read very long before encountering the shocking honesty of the Bible. Living in a fallen world isn't minimized or sugarcoated. Listen to this. Scripture is unflinchingly depicting the daily drama of real life. He goes on, the characters of the Bible are not wax figures in a museum of human nobility, nor are they cartoon characters with syrupy smiles and melodic voices. And then here's the clincher. He said, we recognize the people of the Bible because they look like us. Christianity, this message of Jesus is not the absence of hurt. It's not the absence of bad choices and mishandling things and wishing that you'd have said something different or handled something different. No, the the Christian message is the story of in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our wishing we'd have said it different or handled it different. We have a Savior who shows up and redeems that pain and that guilt and that regret for his glory and our joy. In that book, Healing Your Church Hurts, the author, Stephen Mansfield, quotes a guy named George Barna. If you're a church nerd, you know George Barna. He's a statistician who studies trends around our faith. And he said this. He said, I believe that in 15 years, church attendance in America will be half of what it is today. That research was done about 13 and a half or 14 years ago, and he's almost right so far. He said, I believe church attendance will be half what it is today. And he said, this has much to do with offense and wounding as to any other single factor. People are hurt. In a time when the gospel in America is under attack, when biblical sexual ethics are grounds for hate speech, and when the world is divided and hopeless and desperately needs the voice of the church, we are busy hurting each other. He said this, he said, the poisoning of souls through church hurts is killing us. And the cause of Christ is hindered because the body of Christ is bruised. Church hurts are real. I also think it's helpful not just to see that church hurts are real, but to see that church hurts are not new. We're in the origin story of this thing called church and there's already a split. So this is not some new modern-day epidemic that's American or that's unique to our generation. We tend to just so easily forget, and I'll be honest with you, I forget this on the daily. We just tend to forget that we're just broken people doing life with broken people in a broken world, which means we're going to encounter a whole bunch of brokenness. And, And that's not just true of... Of being at the DMV or being in rush hour traffic. That's true when you're in line at the Mango Tree Cafe. It's true when we're doing life with believers. We're still broken people smack dab in the middle of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And guess what, Jack? None of us have arrived yet. We all got a long way to go. We're going to be hurt. God is more honest about human nature than we are. (laughs) And our fallenness is an offense to him. And yet he's honest about it. I want to speak into this modern trend of what's called an epidemic of terminal church hurts. And and I want to say something this morning. I've struggled with, with sharing this because I'm afraid this might come across sarcastic. And I know I'm a smart aleck. I know that that's my temperament. I know I'm a sarcastic guy. And so I want to preface this by saying this is not meant to be sarcastic. This is meant to be as loving and pastoral as it can be. But I want to quote some scripture to you from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. It was Jewish law. You could not 
beat a person 41 times. And so they typically would beat that person 39 times to make sure they didn't miscount. Pretty awful, right? The Apostle Paul's like, yeah, been there, have five t-shirts. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Stay home, bro. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, in exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for these churches that I love so much that I've birthed with my own blood and tears and sweat. And I read that because I think that perspective is really healthy for us today. Because I think if we read some journals today of post-churched individuals, it would say five times, I think somebody texted something about me with someone and I'm so done with church. And three times, somebody wasn't as friendly to me as I feel like I deserve to be treated when I visit church and I have so much trauma about it that I'm like paralyzed. Hear me very clearly this morning. I'm not minimizing the reality of church hurts. I have witnessed and experienced church hurt for days. You've heard me say before, I've seen the bride of Christ without her makeup on way more often than made up. I've seen the ugly. Growing up as a pastor's kid and being in ministry most of my adult life, I can tell you I have zero scars from lost people. I've got a lot from brothers and sisters. I've experienced that from pastoral staff throughout the years, none of our staff. And I grew up in the home of an abusive pastor. Man, if you want to sit down and have a conversation about church hurts, I'm your guy. Let's talk. I just don't think they have to be the end of the story. Because if they were, I'd be done. I believe church hurts are real. I believe church hurts needs healing. And I believe church hurts don't have to be the end of the story. I'm not minimizing. I'm not deflecting. Listen, I've been through counseling for my own church hurts and my own abuse. I've got people in my life I unpack that mess with whenever it comes up. I'm not taking it lightly. I'm just telling you, God's up to 10,000 things and we might only be aware of three. We belong to a story that is bigger than us. And we have a stewardship, a responsibility to play our part in our moment of the story so that the cause continues to advance for the sake of the next generation. And if we're going to blame our church hurts for quitting in our moment, then the story will die with our generation. And there's too much at stake to allow that to happen. These people in this story who couldn't get along because of a teenage kid, are the same people who stood in coliseums and looked lions in the eye. Face being burnt at the stake with boldness and courage. The same hurtful, petty people who looked just like us had the boldness of martyrdom on them. Surely we can keep moving forward, right? I'm grateful this story is included because it reminds us 
that church hurts are real. And it reminds us that church hurts aren't new. It's part of doing life as a broken person with broken people in a broken world. Here's the third reason I'm really glad that this story is included. Because there's a whisper here. There's a warning here of the danger of unhealed church hurts. There's a whisper here of of not just a story where we roll our eyes at Paul and Barnabas and go, I can't believe y'all didn't get along. I mean, I've been to 10 churches in the last six months, but I can't believe y'all didn't get along. Here's the danger. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 15, and I'm about to read a verse I don't understand. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I struggle with that language, y'all. I can't see to it that you get grace. What does that even mean? Like the most powerful force in the universe. The unstoppable force of grace. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, that root of bitterness, many become defiled. Like this root of bitterness is more like a vine that apparently chokes off the flow of grace to those around me. How terrifying is that? And notice that the trouble is the root of bitterness, not the offense. Trouble happens. But it doesn't have to turn into bitterness. You're not a victim to what's been done to you. You have the power of God's grace inside of you to choose, will this turn into bitterness and be the end of me? Or will I keep moving forward in the power of the grace of God? Ephesians chapter 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Our bitterness is actually satanic. That word opportunity in the text here is the Greek word tapas. Like where we get the word topography from. Has to do with an area, real estate. When bitterness takes a hold of my heart, I am given territory to the devil himself in my own heart. The amazing thing is we can talk about Ouija boards and witches and demons and we're coming up on Halloween and blah, blah, blah. Listen, man, I'm way more concerned about the satanic bitterness in the body of Christ today than I am goblins. We're given territory to the enemy himself when we are unrepentantly bitter. I've said this, this quote more times than I can count, but. Resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It just harms us. It just chokes off the flow of grace to our own hearts and the hearts of the people we're doing life with. I just can't help but wonder if the Apostle Paul as an old man sat and thought, I wish I'd handled this differently. I know I can tell you I've got a long list of those moments in my life. And by God's grace, I want to keep navigating those hurts saying, I don't want this to be the moment that defines me. I want to walk in a spirit of forgiveness and restoration because thank God in his mercy, he's put people around me who've chosen to extend forgiveness and restoration to me. I got to keep moving. I'm, I'm glad this story is included because church hurts are real. Because church hurts aren't new. It's just good news. And church hurts can be deadly. And here, here's the last reason I'm glad that this is included. And I, I already hinted at this before, but we're going to park here for a few minutes. I'm so glad this story is included because the book of Acts doesn't end with chapter 15. Church hurts don't have to be the end of the story. Oh, we serve a risen Savior, right? So pain, if death isn't the end of the story, then hurt sure isn't going to be. Right? Like he's still up to something. It's not the end of the story. And I mean that with capital S story, like his 
story and his mission, but I'll also mean the lowercase story. Like our ordinary everyday stories of hurt and survival and restoration, like the stories don't end with church hurt. I'm so glad. God is always up to 10,000 things, but really only one in 10,000 ways. Advancing the mission of grace for the sake of the world. Come on. Like, he's always going to be up to that. So his story is going to keep moving forward, even in our hurt. This could have been the end of the deal, man. This could have been the thing that took down this fragile little thing called Ecclesia. God, what were you doing? Where were you? Did you take a day off? No. (laughs) God didn't fail. He was up to something. One of the 10,000 things that God was up to was advancing the mission. Remember their, their, their great idea, the good friends with the great idea. Their great idea was let's go back and visit these churches. That wasn't part of the 10,000 things God was up to. He was up to something bigger than either of them could see in that moment. And that is he wanted to send out two mission teams. Cause John Mark and Barnabas went back and visited those churches. Like their great idea was fulfilled. What did God do with Paul and Silas? Sent them to brand new territory. Like those of you who've been to Bible college or seminary, you study the missionary journeys of Paul, right? And if you have been in class like I have, this is called Paul's second missionary journey. It wasn't supposed to be. That wasn't his plan. It was supposed to be Paul's first missionary journey revisited. The remix. 2.0. Right? But God said, no, I got a whole new plan here. Even in this division, even in this ugly moment, I'm going to do something glorious and beautiful and great because that's the God we serve. So let's jump back into the text. I want you to see what happens next. Here we go. You ready? Verse 41. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Verse 1. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy. That's where all the church people are supposed to go. Hello. The son of a a Jewish woman who's a believer, his father was a Greek. He's well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. I want you to see this. The story gets so weird. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Because they all knew his father was a Greek. Paul just fought for circumcision not being necessary and yet chose to do so to humbly communicate in a gracious way to the Jewish people they're about to go proclaim Jesus to. Is that not amazing? Am I the only one who's like, wow, this is not necessary to be saved. But if one more person will listen to the story of Jesus, okay. Man, that's humble. They went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for their observance. The decisions, (laughs) the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And Timothy was like, wait, what? (laughs) Right? He circumcises Timothy and then takes him around telling everybody circumcision isn't necessary. Nobody else finds that funny? Come on. Then he's like, why didn't we start there? (laughs) Verse 5, though, y'all. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily because the move of God cannot be stopped by our division, by our hurt, by our pain, by our regrets. He's on the move. You know what you're about to say? God is always doing 10,000 things and exactly zero of them can be stopped. Yeah. Come on. Right? Oh, he's up to something. It wasn't a stopping point. It was a, a new starting point. There's no power, no authority, and there is no pain 
in all the earth that can stop our God from accomplishing what he has set out to do. The greatest leaders in the early church. The ones who are out there pounding pavement doing the work. And their division couldn't stop our God because he's still on the move. God will always be in the business of advancing his story. Capital S. But here's the part of the sermon that I've been chomping at the bit for months to get to. This is the part I'm most excited about. God will also always be in the business of invading our lowercase stories and putting back together the broken pieces with his grace. Because here's the deal. God wasn't done with this thing called ecclesia, but he wasn't done with John Mark either. (laughs) Oh, y'all. About 15 years, at least 15 years after Acts chapter 15. The ugly division. The Apostle Paul is in house arrest in the city of Rome. He's writing letters to the churches. Specifically, he's writing to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter 4, verse number 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark. Come on. Mark greets you. Yes, the cousin of Barnabas. P.S. Concerning whom you've already received instructions. I already sent word. If he comes to you, you welcome him. They've been restored, y'all. Something happened. Like, I want to know what happened when he ran away. But I way more want to know what happened when he came home. Somehow, he's with Paul in his house arrest, ministering to him. Because we serve a God who delights in restoring broken pieces. Sometime after that, Paul must have sent him to Peter. Peter refers to John Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5 as his son. (laughs) When Barnabas is your cousin and Peter's your spiritual dad, that's quite the family tree. Peter so influenced John Mark that what we now call the gospel of Mark is actually the gospel of John Mark. God used this kid to write one of the four gospels of Jesus Christ. We don't call it the gospel of John Mark because we already have a gospel of John. And that would just be confusing. But make no mistake, that's this kid. And scholars have said it sounds so much like Peter that scholars who have nothing better to do actually debate whether John Mark was Peter's ghostwriter or was he so influenced by the early church fathers that it just sounded like he was speaking like them. That's how restored this kid was. The most accurate eyewitness account of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of Mark. Come on! Is that amazing? It gets better than that. The Apostle Paul, at the very end of his life, by his own words, we know that he was aware that he was facing impending death. The last letter he ever wrote is the book of 2 Timothy. And he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Hallelujah. Is that good? Now if my name's Luke, that verse doesn't read great. (laughs) Poor Luke. He's like, listen y'all. It's just me and Luke. Please send somebody else. (laughs) Poor Luke. Send. Can you think about that? When people are at the end, they start asking for the things that give them the most comfort. He asked for that young man 
That's just amazing. That's the way God restores our pain, but it gets better than that. Church history tells us that Paul's death did not stop John Mark, nor did Peter's crucifixion. Mark continued to grow and develop, and he's called in church history a lion of the faith. He went on to become the Bishop of Alexandria. He led his people well. He faced persecution with courage. And church history tells us that he was martyred for his faith in Christ. One church historian said this, the banner over John Mark's life at the end was this. This time he did not run away. Because we serve a God who delights in healing our church hurts and actually turning them into our strengths. The guy who's been known as a runner stood and faced execution with courage. God is up to 10,000 things. And I don't pretend to know what those 10,000 things are. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't pretend to know what three of them are. But today I can tell you this. He's in the business of restoring brokenness. And that includes in your story too. The amazing thing is God used the story of Paul and Barnabas even with their hurts to change the world. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and the question is, will we continue to be faithful in that calling? Will we continue to serve people as broken people in a broken world? I want to end with this story. I, um, I love spending time in Sundance Square, downtown Fort Worth, um, for the three weeks of the year in Texas that it's actually fall or spring. I don't mind the heat, but my laptop overheats and turns black. But y'all know I mind the cold. Those of you who know me well, if it's below 60, I'm not sitting outside. It could be 110, I'm fine. Um, so a few weeks ago when we experienced false fall, by the way, if you're new to the state of Texas, I'm sorry we didn't warn you. Nobody warned me 14 falls ago either that there's a thing here called false fall. <laughs> false fall I took a day went Sunday in square had a lot of, of work to do on sermon stuff I, I was talking to somebody just in the foyer this morning about um, I like to be a planner I usually start a sermon really far in advance and let it marinate I'm not smart there are guys who write sermons on like Saturday night and are better communicators than me I don't know how they do it for me, it's, it just takes a minute. Um, Lance has watched my process the last several years. It, it just it gets there. And, and there comes a moment in a sermon where I've got all this research done. It's, it's all in one document separated by author or pastor or theologian or whatever. And it's a mess. It makes no sense. And I've got to have an un, uninterrupted moment where I can put it together in a cohesive thought. Right? That's really hard to do on this campus because of your children. And so going to a place like Sundance Square. And so I went a few weeks ago when the weather was nice and I had six sermons that I was behind on. Not really probably being overly OCD, but I felt really behind on them. And I told Lance, please pray for me today. I want to get way more done than is actually humanly possible. And then I'll be disappointed when it doesn't happen. And so I'm sitting there. And I'm working because I'm really behind and I want to get this stuff organized. It is a disorganized mess. And a security guard walks up to me and says, how are you this morning? And I said, I'm doing sermon prep. Shut up and leave me alone. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. 
Non-verbally, I kind of did, though. I kind of did that whole, hey, I'm good. Right? He's like, what you working on? Well, now I have to be nice. <laughs> Actually, the, the truth is, I, I still tried to deflect. I was like, I'm just doing work stuff. He's like, yeah, what is it? He, he asked multiple times. So I finally had to say, I'm working on a sermon. I'm a pastor. And I was so frustrated because I wanted to get this work done. And this former Marine started to cry as soon as I told him I was a pastor. And said, man, my life is a complete disaster right now. My marriage is hanging on by a thread. I'm so unsatisfied in what I'm doing for a career. I have felt lost since I came home. I'm emotionally and psychologically wrecked with PTSD. And I feel like I am completely without hope in the world. Stranger. Marine. Tough dude. Just standing there in the middle of Sundance Square. For 45 minutes telling me his story. In church language, we call that a divine appointment. But maybe we should just call that Thursday. Because every person we encounter is a broken person looking for another broken person to tell them there's such a thing as hope. I was, he walked away, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, words on a page are not the business that you are in. You're in the people business. Well, friend, that's not just because I am a pastor. It's because we're followers of the one who chose to enter our little lowercase s stories and birth hope in the midst of our pain. Bring healing into our hurts. And I don't know another moment in my 45 years of life that I've been more convinced than I am today the world is in desperate need of people who will just treat them like people who will walk with other broken people and say, I want to show you the hope that's found in Jesus. Every story you will encounter today, every story you will encounter this week, yes, even that boss that drives you crazy, is a person whose story God wants to enter and interrupt with hope. If you're going to go out to eat when you leave here, that waitress is a human being with a story. And maybe just the way you order today can give her a little hope to press on. Every story we encounter is on purpose. Whatever hurts God's bringing us through, that healing isn't just for us. It's for somebody else too. May we be infectious with healing in our city, in our homes, and in our community this very week.